Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. speak about a Jewish response to factory farming. And the first thing I want to kind of get at is just how big of an issue this is. Um, factory farming is like an event that most people haven't uh, woken up to. So some quick kind of statistics to give us a sense of the scale of what we're dealing with. Uh, factory farming uh, is the you know, major uh, thing that's growing animal agriculture in our world today. And we pretty much know animal agriculture is the major driver of climate change. Uh, it's always kind of amazing to watch uh, all the attention to climate change, and so rarely do we talk about this major driver. By the way, those who doubt that it's the major driver for climate change say it's number two. Uh, so we're dealing with an absolutely immense force at that level. Animal agriculture right now occupies one-third of the arable land on the planet. A third of the land that people can walk on is occupied by animal agriculture. And increasingly, um, and certainly the growth, is coming from factory farming. We're talking about an industry, because I'm going to include in that phrase factory farming, what's happening with the industrialization of fishing and fish farming. And if we look at it there, what we see is we, we are actually emptying the oceans. We uh, are, you have uh, marine scientists uh, predicting total fishery collapses by 2050. We're hauling more biomass out of the oceans than the oceans can reproduce. And if you think for a moment about how fecund oceans are, this is an astonishing thing for humans to be able uh, to do. So factory farming is also uh, the cause of this. It's a major driver of global inequity. You know, farming used to be the main profession folks had. You know, go back a century in this country, uh, and you'll find most folks uh, are, uh, maybe it's a little more than a century in this country, century and a half, and most folks are in farming. When you create these forms of farming that don't really require farmers, in the U.S. we're down to 2.5% and shrinking uh, of the country we need, you all of a sudden eliminate huge uh, job bases, uh, and you don't replace them with good jobs. The only jobs remaining are kind of factory jobs, and the wealth pours uh, into the top of the folks who own the genetics, who own the technology. So we have a major driver of wealth inequality uh, in factory farming. The last huge issue I'll mention uh, is the issue of superbugs and uh, the fears of having another uh, major pandemic, which you know we will have. That's a natural phenomena. It's a matter of scale and speed. And we're basically in a situation with, if I just mentioned chickens to you, we got 50 billion sick chickens in confinement facilities globally. Uh, and it's especially important that they're birds, because humans and birds share certain uh, flus. Birds distribute a lot of the uh, flus that we have. Uh, and we have factory farming aggravating this very serious issue with uh, pandemics. Also, it contributes to small issues. So our Center for Disease Control 
uh, says uh, poultry is the majority of uh, mundane foodborne illness. So we're dealing with an absolutely um, immense, immense problem. Now, of course, I've had to begin by saying that because it's not the way we tend to think about factory farming. It's usually seen as kind of one issue uh, among others. It's a fairly uh, distant uh, concern. Really, it suffers from one of the problems that I think every really great moral problem suffers from, is that we're in a moment when bad has become normal, and it's very hard to feel uh, just how bad things have gotten. It doesn't attract headlines when it's bad all the time. It doesn't move our hearts when it's bad all the time. It's hard to see it as a problem. It's also hard to believe the scale of the problem. I mean, I'm, I'm you, know, you know, out here saying whether we're talking about human health, global inequality, the uh, survivability of our ecosystem, we have factory farming as a major driver, uh, and this is virtually undiscussed by our politicians and in a lot of the media, though certainly there's parts of the media which uh, are good about covering this. So how could it possibly be that this problem could be so immense and we wouldn't have uh, more discussion of it? But in some ways, um, that, is, uh, that is the problem, is that it's uh, hard to wake up to this and hard to confront it. So what I want to uh, do for the remainder of our time, I want to say a little bit more about how the factory farm system contributes to uh, animal suffering. I'm going to kind of just give a little sliver to give us a, a picture of what that looks like and some of the history of that, how it came about. Not so much these terrible things that are happening, but how did we, how did we get there? Then I want to pause and uh, bring in the Jewish piece and say a little bit about how I come to this issue differently uh, because of my Jewish background and how I think uh, Judaism can help inform uh, and frame a kind of response to this. And then I'm going to end very... Uh, simply with a kind of uh, invitation to kind of join me in trying to uh, think about ways to address this issue. So to talk about the cruelty issues, I want to speak a bit about chickens specifically. Uh, so uh, chickens are the most numerous uh, farmed animal. We've got about 9 billion chickens uh, in this country alone. So let me tell you a little bit more about uh, uh, how we got into a situation with so many chickens in the world, so many chickens in the U.S. We eat today about a hundred, or I should say we produce in America about 150 times uh, as much chicken, majority of it we're consuming here, than we did about a century ago, per capita, per capita. So for every person who consumed one chicken 100 years ago, uh, we are now consuming 150. It's really hard to imagine. It's unlike any other industry. The numbers aren't like that if I look at beef or I look at uh, uh, poultry. If I go back about a century ago, the way in which we produced poultry was on millions and millions of small flocks. The average flock size, according to our government, was 20-some birds. So like a large flock would have been like 35 birds, 50 birds. That would have been a really big flock a century ago. All right? Now, you can't find a flock in America. You can't find a building in America with less than 20,000 birds. Even if I go to developing countries which have much smaller in infrastructure, the smallest building I'm going to see for birds is going to have 4,000 birds in it. It's a totally different way to raise these animals, which is why we can see this huge uh, spike. So what, what changed? What changed? By the way, I'll say, you know, that's how we got uh, 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 the chicken uh, for Shabbos dinner. It was a special thing to eat a chicken a century ago. To slaughter a chicken from your flock was a big deal. 
right? And so it became special. Now, of course, chicken is just an incredibly cheap meat, and people expect it to be cheap, and they treat it uh, as such. So the piece I want to focus on here, which is not usually what's focused on when we talk about uh, the abuse of farmed animals and factory farms, is the genetics. Genetics is what I want to talk about. Often we focus on confinement, on these big buildings, on these kind of systems. But many of those problems I've learned are really driven by genetic issues. So used to be chickens were all what we call today dual purpose chickens. Dual purpose means we use them for eggs and we use them for meat. It was the same bird, the females obviously, not the males, laying the eggs, but all being eaten for meat at a certain kind of time. And this is the way uh, the model worked. As we began to intensify our uh, genetic selection of these birds, we uh, divorced the egg-laying birds from the meat birds. So that today, the birds who produce our eggs do not enter our meat supply. Uh, they are simply rendered uh, and turned into animal feed or something like that. It's not considered uh, quality enough for human consumption. Uh, and the meat birds aren't used uh, for laying, except in terms of laying the eggs that reproduce the birds. It's a totally separate system. I'm going to talk about the meat birds, but just to give you a little bit about the laying hens, there's many fewer of them. But of course, when you have a system where the bird is only economically valuable because of the eggs it's laid, it's just so scrawny and kind of uh, malformed, it's not good for, uh, for meat, you don't have any use for the male chicks. So in our egg industry today, I mentioned this earlier, all the male chicks are just exterminated as soon as they are identified. So you have a kind of sexing station. They look at the bird. Uh, if it's a female bird, it goes down a chute to go into egg production. If it's a male bird, it goes into something that would look to you like a wood chipper. It's like a mass raider, just crushes them up. It's actually a quick death, but um, it's disturbing just because of the waste of life. It's not actually a cruelty issue there. Uh, it's just, you know, why would we want to design a system in which half of the animals are just a waste product that has to be immediately uh, exterminated? But that's the system we've created. So the meat birds are the ones who have really been profoundly modified. We've accelerated the way in which they grow so that instead of it taking 120 days to get to market, they get to that same weight in about 40 days. So three times as fast. And they're eating less feed per day, about a third less feed per day. So from an economic perspective, you can imagine how much more profitable this is. I have to keep the bird alive for a third the time. It eats dramatically less feed, which is an expensive part of poultry production. So you get all this uh, wonderful uh, efficiency, at least this is how the industry uh, looks at it. But the cost to the bird is enormous. And creating this kind of intervention, though we don't use gene splicing right now, uh, is not something that was conceivable for the last 10,000 years. The kinds of breeding we've developed today, and this is the kind of uh, more complicated piece I want to try to convey here, is uh, as different in the world as gene splicing is. Our current discussion of GMOs, people are very worried about GMOs, defines them in a pretty narrow way, so that it's a GMO only if you have gene splicing going on and you're moving genetic material from one animal to a totally separate animal. In chickens, I would argue, you achieve a more radical modification of the genome. That is, if I actually were to look at the genetic sequences, we've changed them more radically than we do uh, when we do gene splicing, uh, but through a different kind of technique. 
that has somehow managed to be kind of slid under the radar as if it's something the industry has been doing for a long time. But the industry itself, especially in the 70s, started referring to this form of breeding as hybrid breeding. And it's not just the simple kind of hybrid like you might be familiar with, but they started referring to it as hybrid breeding in order to say internally in their industrial magazines, we figured out a totally different way to breed chickens and it's gonna revolutionize the industry. So they were the ones who identified this as a new phenomena. Here's how we get chickens today. This would be true on the layer side or the broiler side. To produce one of those chickens, one of the layers or one of the birds that folks eat, we have to have 15 to 20 different specialized lines of birds that carry particular genetic markers. Right? Each one of those lines has to have at least 100,000 birds just to keep it genetically sound. So today to produce a single egg-laying hen or a single meat bird, you basically have to have a, the ability to store a million and a half to two million birds, which means it's completely out of the hands of small farmers. Only very large corporations can even deal with this. So what do I mean when I say it takes 15 to 20 different lines? It's a kind of cocktail crossing. So imagine we've got line A, in line B, and I breed them together and I get line C. And then I take line D in line E, and I breed them together and I get F. And then I take uh, C and F, and I breed them together and I get another chicken. And then I do that again on the father's side. And in this way, I use 15 to 20 different lines, crossing them to get these almost magical characteristics of growing three times as fast, eating less feed, becoming very uh, uh, fatty and having the kind of meat qualities that the industry is looking for. It doesn't just happen. Now, one of the results of this is that you can't take chickens in a farm and just breed them together and get more chickens like that. It's just not possible. You can't do it with these birds. You get totally unviable birds if you'll even get offspring at all. So if I'm a farmer buying birds in this system, I have to keep going back to big industry to get those birds. In fact, all the 50 billion birds that I mentioned globally, uh, their genetics are owned by about three companies. Uh, I've never found more than three. Uh, I think it's safe to assume it's always less than five, uh, but it is owned by a lot of these kind of big companies. They often own a lot of pharmaceuticals, which is uh, not an accident, because when you modify the animal in this way genetically, you can't just put them on the ground and expect them to behave like other chickens. And that's where the confinement comes in, which we often focus on as if it's the problem. When we genetically modified these animals in this way, sped them up, they simply have weaker immune systems. They simply just can't behave as well. So how do we deal with the otherwise massive death rates that would occur with these birds? Well, you confine them in buildings and you make those buildings biosecure, and then you put uh, antibiotics and other kinds of antimicrobials in their feed constantly. You don't wait for them to get sick. And that is enough to offset the negative effects of the genetic modification you've done. The birds will survive at least for 40 days. After all, you only have to keep them alive for 40 days, so they can be pretty messed up uh, and uh, manage to make it to 40 days. Uh, and you essentially get this like co-evolution system where you've got the geneticist modifying the bird, the pharmacist designing the feed, other engineers designing the building. And all of these things are done in coordination with increasing kind of intensity. So when you order up, if you're a chicken farmer, you order a particular type of chicken, it comes with instructions as to how you need to confine it and exactly what feed you need to feed it. And if you deviate from that at all, you're gonna get much reduced production. 
So it's simply a totally different way to produce chickens. And it's this which really causes the cruelty. Because even if I take that bird out of the cage, its body is a kind of cage. It's not just uh, that its immune system is weak and it's subject to greater diseases. It's actually painful for these animals to walk. And these are baby animals. So they say about the last third of their life, uh, the gait that they make exhibits that they are in pain. From a welfare point of view, that seems like a problem. From an industry point of view, this was another benefit. If you're in pain, how much do you move? Right? You stand still. Well, if you stand still, you don't burn as many calories. You don't need as many, uh, much food to eat. That's great. It's all part of the system. So there's a direct relationship between the suffering of the animal and the profitability of the system. The efficiency we put in the system is not like efficiency in the normal sense. It's more like efficiency in the sense of exploitation can be efficient. If you have absolutely no concern for the animal in the system, this can make sense. And it's important to recognize that the farmer, the chicken farmer, and the chicken have kind of gone down together. We really don't have chicken farmers left in this country anymore. I work with some folks who uh, work with heritage birds, birds that are kind of pre-1950 genetics. Um, there's only one that's commercially viable that I'm aware of in the whole country. Only one that actually has permission from the USDA to put on their label, I have a heritage bird. That is, everybody else is using these genetically modified birds. Organic, free range, pastured, the whole bit, they're all these same genetically modified birds. There's variations. Instead of 40 days to market, I can get a slightly slower growing bird that takes 60 days to get to market. And all those problems I just mentioned will reduce. They won't disappear. I can also get one of these engineered birds that's 80 days. And that's about the highest welfare um, uh, bird. Those 80-day birds, so obviously that's not as profitable as the 40-day bird, they'll do pretty well. If I took you to a farm and you saw that 80-day bird, you'd say, oh, it seems to, be, seems to be doing OK. And I would agree with that. But it's parents. Man, they're the ones who really suffer. So those 15 to 20 different lines that I mentioned, they never come to market. They don't have to be served on your plate. Nobody sees them. They're you know, owned rather secretively by these big uh, companies because that's kind of their, their wealth is bound up in those birds. Uh, and their only purpose is to carry particular genetic material. It's not, of course, as simple as you know, this one carries the you know, obese gene and this one carries the fast growth gene. It's a more complicated version of something like that, though which means they're looking at the animal totally different than a previous generation of uh, breeding techniques. It used to be, I was always trying to get the most out of my bird. I wanted it to grow fast. I wanted it to eat little. That's not a new thing. But I had to have a survivable bird. I couldn't just only focus on it having one characteristic and ignore all the other characteristics. It not only had to grow fast, but it had to fight disease when disease came. It had to deal with harsh weather when harsh weather came. It had to nurture its young to reproduce itself. But now we're in a system which you can just have them completely in an artificial environment you know, with these uh, uh, breeder birds, broiler breeders is what the industry will call them. They can put a lot of expense into designing uh, systems that essentially keep but previous generations of farmers would have considered mutated birds alive. I get a lot of pushback when I use that word, when I call these birds mutant birds. So I want to explain that. That's how farmers describe them. That is, somebody who's trained to do traditional kind of breeding 
if they saw one of these birds that exhibits these various kinds of morphology differences, they would say, oh, that's a mutant. We don't want that bird in our system, and they would remove it. What farmers have done today is take those birds and intensively breed them together. So for example, they took dwarfism, something we're familiar with. They bred the dwarfs together and figured out how to take some of those genes and use them in this cocktail fashion to create this more efficient bird. So it's a completely different system. It's probably inherently problematic from an animal welfare perspective, but certainly in the way it's manifest. It's produced birds that simply suffer by their very nature. They can't fly, they can't walk without pain, uh, and they suffer tremendously from heart and lung and skeletal problems. It's pretty tragic. So this is factory farming. Whether we're looking at it at the environmental scale, at the social scale, or the scale of animal suffering, it is just uh, one of the biggest problems we can imagine. So how might Judaism have something to contribute to understanding this problem and responding to it? I want to say something about how this comes out of, uh, how certain insights I think come out of Jewish historical experience and something about how our textual tradition can be helpful. One of the things that uh, is kind of inevitable uh, that you know, if you are a Jew, is that there was anti-Semitism, or there is anti-Semitism. Real basic observation, right? But this is a non-trivial thing. This is a kind of epistemological advantage that certain communities who have been oppressed have. That is an advantage in terms of understanding how the world actually works. Because what we know about anti-Semitism is not just, of course, it's bad, that it led to some of the greatest evils we can kind of imagine people doing, but we also know it was pervasive, and not for a century or two centuries, but for more than a millennia, and in virtually every uh, part of the Western world. We really are lucky, of course, to live in America. It's rather anomalous uh, the way America uh, kept its anti-Semitism on the light or uh, had it disappear. So what we know, and it's a really powerful thing to know, is that an evil like anti-Semitism can exist in the world for a very long time, can become, in some ways, the fabric of Western society, and yet still be something utterly wrong, and something that can be removed. It gives us a kind of insight into the way in which certain forms of oppression work, and how they can just seem totally normal. You know, one, one of the things you always have to put up with if you're in certain forms of intellectual history is that you go back a certain amount of time, and the thinkers are going to be anti-Semites. There's just no way around it, because everybody was an anti-Semite, right? You have to suck that up to deal with these thinkers. But it also gives us, as I said, a kind of insight into the way oppression works. And so I think, as a Jewish community, from that historical experience, we can be a little bit more ready to take seriously that this very pervasive problem really, indeed, might be as big and as problematic as I'm suggesting. The other thing I want to take out of Jewish tradition is narrative, is the story. The biblical tradition, the Midrashic tradition, the Talmudic tradition. Because there's a particular story of meat in our uh, uh, textual sources, especially in the uh, Hebrew Bible. I mean, the story of food uh, and of how meat's going to be dealt with is hugely central uh, to the Hebrew Bible. Right? The first commandment in the Hebrew Bible is around, uh, is around food. It's you're only going to eat uh, leaves and beans, uh, which we get at the end of the first chapter of Genesis. 
uh, command, which is then removed in the narrative in Genesis 9 after the flood, uh, what Christians will call the fall after that period. Uh, you have uh, uh, you know, Noah comes off the ark. There's a new covenant made with Noah, the Noahide covenant. It's actually not just made with Noah. It's made with all creation. It's repeated in the text seven times that it's not just with Noah, but it's all creatures. So it's an interesting kind of intensification of that. And in that new covenant, God says, okay, now you can eat the animals, but you're going to have to set up a sacrificial system, the blood prohibition. Uh, one of the few things that uh, Christians kept in Jewish law is the blood prohibition. Uh, very, very deep. You know? So we have an original story in Genesis in which no meat is eaten. We have a story in which uh, meat enters the world at a certain point, which is read in different uh, ways by the tradition. And then we have an entire sacrificial system, which in large part, you know, the book of Leviticus, which we usually don't enjoy reading that much, but it's a big part of the uh, Bible in terms of pages, deals with the system you're supposed to use as to how you're going to uh, kill these animals, where you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, how it's going to be associated with offerings. There's uh, the dominant metaphor of the text when it talks about the human relationship with God as God as the shepherd of Israel. This is uh, you know, me with my professor hat on when they do statistical analysis of what the metaphors are. Overwhelmingly, it's this metaphor of God as shepherd. So, I mean, think about what this means. This means when people looked to thinking about God and they looked around them and looked for things that would be analogous that would help them imagine God, they looked to shepherds and they said, well, that looks like, you know, what God would be. That's the best analogy we have to talk about God. So, the story of meat is deep, deep within our uh, tradition. The biblical uh, tradition, I think, makes it, uh, makes it central and makes it problematic. It makes meat problematic. It doesn't say meat is wrong, but it makes it problematic. The dominant relationship to meat in the Jewish tradition is it's morally fraught, but acceptable. That's how I would describe the dominant kind of theme. But it's not just something to be trifled with. It's not just something, oh, yeah, we just go you know, set up, have the scientists set up an efficient system and get us meat. This is not the uh, sense you get, certainly from the bib biblical tradition, uh, but also not from the uh, Midrashic tradition. Meat is a kind of problem, and we have to approach it right in order to be right uh, with God. Of course, we do have minority streams which will go further than that, which will not only say meat is problematic, but will say it would be better if we don't eat it uh, at all, or we eat it very, very, very sparsely, maybe a little bit on Shabbat. That uh, has its most famous representative in uh, uh, the first Ashkenazic uh, rabbi of uh, pre-state Israel, uh, Abraham Isaac Cook, uh, who famously argued uh, in favor of vegetarianism, both because he said God did not create his creatures to die, uh, paraphrasing him there, uh, and also because he worried about what it did to human moral sensibilities. Uh, and so he's, he's a representative of that minority tradition, but speaking, you know, again, uh, with that scholar's hat trying to describe to you the dominant tradition says it's acceptable. A minority tradition presses a little further. So what comes out of the dominant tradition? What are we, uh, what, what's, the, what's the formula for engaging in this fraught activity? It's really two principles, and they're going to sound pretty familiar to you. One is the ideal of an animal having a good death. The other is the obligation to give the animal a good life. 
Um, if this sounds like kind of mainstream American ethics, is because this is something which you probably could argue is also there in the Christian tradition, um, and it's certainly still with us today. So things like the uh, Humane Slaughter Act, which is really the only law we have protecting farm animals in any substantial way, was passed in the 1950s, modified in the 70s and the 90s. But when it was passed, I'm forgetting who the president was, forgive me, um, but it more letters were received by the president in support of the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act that year than any other piece of legislation. Many of them citing the Bible, interestingly enough, with quotes from the Bible. Not, you know, wouldn't have been mostly Jewish folks, just given the numbers. So we have this notion pretty deeply in us. We owe animals a good death and a little bit softer, but it's still there. We owe animals a good life. I want to kind of point out how this appears in the Jewish tradition and how I read it and then come back to modernity. So how do we see the ideal of an animal's good death um, manifest? What would I point to to argue that that's a Jewish tradition? Well, it has a lot to do with how uh, the profession of being a shochet was managed. Right? So a shochet, a Jewish slaughterer who practices shechita, the Jewish method of slaughter. We have a lot of discussion about the importance of selecting a morally upright person. If the morally upright person be the shochet, why is this so important? I mean, wouldn't you always want a morally upright person for everything? Well, they're saying, no, no, especially here, we need a strong moral person because the risk is great that the person will be inculcated in cruelty by this act. And we have to be very careful to find people who are able to engage in this morally fraught act and not end up somehow becoming callous and cruel. This is actually a pragmatic problem slaughterhouses uh, have to deal with today in their management. Um, Temple Grandin, I mentioned her earlier, the most famous kind of animal welfare scientist uh, in the world, designed more than three quarters of our cattle slaughter um, uh, facility, says one of the main problems in slaughterhouses is uh, you get uh, sociopaths or psychopaths on the line, people who kind of can uh, often get some pleasure out of having kind of total control um, and they get attracted to that industry enough that they have to do special screenings, she argues, to keep them out. So maybe the rabbis were thinking of something like that, maybe they were really thinking more in the positive direction, but there's a tremendous amount of discussion about this and it's important because what that shochet has to do is he has to give the animal a good death. And shochets are trained through manuals. So one of the ways we can look at the history of what we're told the shochets, what was, you know, how did we really, what did we really say to them, uh, is you have these booklets that were used to train them. And most of them historically cite Rambam, cite Nemonides, saying the reason for shechita is to reduce animal suffering. And this is important for you to understand to do this technique right. And that's put in there almost as a matter of course. Today, that's often not there. You'll often have uh, active uh, interest in denying that there is any relationship between concern for suffering uh, and kosher law. But it's kind of a weird thing that has happened in the industry. Yeah, I can see people are looking at me strangely because it's not what we're taught. You know, dominant folk explanation of shechita, dominant one is it's a, it gives a quick death. It's a good death. Uh, but the forces today don't really want to tie that um, because, very simple, why? They're tied up with the factory farm now. It's no longer Jewish values driving the way kosher slaughter works. It's a whole other set um, of values. There's a wonderful story about the Baal Shem Tov, uh, founder of Hasidism, uh, who was known to be a shochet, uh, but it said he would wet his knife with his own tears because he was mourning when he would engage in slaughtering. So we have this really strong tradition 
uh, of giving animal uh, a good uh, death. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. But we also have a strong tradition of arguing for the life of the animal, animals having a good life. Now that doesn't get as much press, doesn't get as much discussion. Um, it's, it's less frequent, but there's a very pragmatic reason why. Historically, with all forms of agriculture prior to factory farming, you have some degree of alignment between the interests of the farmer in, its, in economic productivity and the interests of the animal. Healthy animals grew better. Healthy animals survived. So treating an animal well made sense economically. You didn't have a lot of motive to abuse an animal the way you do now. So you had to worry about cruelty. You had to worry about that. But most people aren't going to be cruel. So where do you focus your regulatory efforts? On the moment of slaughter. At that moment, the animal's interests and the farmer's interests are different. Right? And so we have this intensive regulation of slaughter. We're all familiar with it. Uh, we have shechita, the institution of the shochet. Not same, nothing parallel to that in terms of raising the animals. But I'm submitting to you that this is not because we weren't concerned or the rabbis weren't concerned or the tradition wasn't concerned as much with the animal's life. It just was less of a problem. You just didn't have to worry about it as much there. And of course, the guiding principle here is tsar ba'alei chayim. Uh, which is a Talmudic phrase used to identify a number of mitzvot that deal with uh, animal protection. Uh, Tzar Chaim literally translates as the suffering of those that possess life. But when you see it translated in English, it's more likely you'll see it translated as compassion for animals, because that is how it's, uh, how it's used. The legal prohibition is against causing unnecessarily suffering to life. So the way that worked in the Jewish tradition is laws like from uh, Deuteronomy, the prohibition against plowing two animals of uh, unequal strength together. Why would you prohibit that? Well, if you have a weak animal and a strong animal, the weak animal will suffer. That's the explanation for why, uh, or one of the explanations for why it's prohibited. Uh, another uh, uh, rule from the Deuteronomic Code, which I mentioned earlier, a prohibition on muzzling animals while they work. Uh, that is, they're often going to be working where there's food around them. Might be advantageous economically to muzzle them. Uh, the rabbis say no, they have to be able to munch uh, while they work. And the most famously is that in both the uh, uh, Exodus and uh, uh, Deuteronomic uh, statement of the Decalogue, of the, the so-called Ten Commandments, um, in the commandment for Sabbath rest, animals are explicitly included. Animals participate in Sabbath rest. Rashi argues, so now I'm skipping you know, ahead uh, to the 1100s, uh, that this prohibition on work for animals on the Sabbath doesn't, isn't just a negative prohibition, doesn't just mean you can't work your animals on Sabbath. It means they must be in a positive state of contentment, and for him that meant access to pasture. Right? This is not a rule being followed in the kosher industry today. I don't know how they deal with that halakhically. Um, but uh, I'm no uh, expert in halakha. This is a legitimately uh, complicated kind of uh, area. Now, if you look at all these different rules and their intensification, I've mentioned the biblical uh, origins of these rules, but then the rabbis expand these rules considerably. If we look at that body of legislation, we'll see a pattern, which is that the rabbis come in 
and issue laws or expand laws where there's an economic incentive to exploit the animal, to harm the animal. That is, in the rare cases where we have a disinterest, think of that muzzled ox, normally the ox's interest and the farmer's interest align, but at those moments where it's unaligned, that's where the rabbis focus. So famously, a lot of discussions about overloaded donkey carts, right? Because that's a temptation. Get some more stuff on the donkey. You know, it may be really in a lot of pain, but if it doesn't die, you can make some more money. So we have a lot of regulations around this. So what's the real insight coming out of the tradition? Is that we have to be alert when somebody's going to make money from hurting an animal. That's not a good situation for anybody. We don't want the good people to have to compete against folks who are able to sell their product at a higher price through engaging in cruelty. We don't want humans engaging in cruelty at all. It's bad for character. And then the obvious wrong to the animal themselves. So we've got to be scrupulous to identify those cases. This seems to me the rabbinic mentality. And to find a way around them. So this is, I think, what comes out of our tradition. Meat is important. It's not a trivial issue. It's something that is of biblical scale to pay attention to. And we need to attend to these moments when the animal's interest and the human interest parts. Obviously at death, but also throughout the animal's life. Now the big change, jumping back to modernity, these ethics don't work that well with modernity because as I've detailed, now the interests of the animal and the interests of the farmer are totally in contradiction to one another. Now, and this is the real secret of factory farming, it's almost a definition of factory farming. Factory farming is the system in which sick animals are more profitable than healthy ones. Right? That's the system we've created. It's not good for anybody. Really, it's one of these rare things where if you look carefully, there's not really any upside. It's not like somebody's it's not creating great jobs. It's not generating some kind of positive social benefit. Um, it's really just a dysfunction in our economic system, in our moral imagination. So I find at least these uh, traditions inspiring. Uh, the effort to regulate, to change, to recognize you have to make small steps that I see going on in the rabbinic tradition would be the way to try to change things uh, in the system today. So before I open it up for Q&A and discussion, and I'm as interested to hear comments as, as I am uh, questions, let me kind of uh, bring this to the uh, present moment and how we might as a community respond. Uh, so as Shmuley mentioned, I run uh, an organization called Farm Forward, which is specifically focused on fighting uh, factory farming. It's not an academic group. That's me without my uh, scholar's hat on. And two years ago, uh, we started something called the Jewish Initiative for Animals. Uh, we've got uh, three full-time staff and support staff behind it. So it's small, but it's a meaningful, uh, meaningful group. Uh, and the main issue we're trying to take on is, uh, is getting factory farming addressed in the Jewish community. And we've really had some, uh, some exciting things happen. Uh, so we've worked with summer camps to change their menus. We've worked with congregations that are experiencing with different food. We've got a lot of energy among young people to address this issue. So the uh, largest Jewish youth conference in the world, uh, the B'nai B'rith uh, Youth Organization Conference, um, invited me there this year because the students get to initiate a certain number of the panels. Uh, the students said, we want to do something on uh, uh, animal protection. Uh, and so they, you know, Googled and uh, found me and, you know, had me come out there. And it was pretty amazing because the students self-select into the tracks, right? So some of the students 
decide the tracks, and you know, there's many of them. And then the students identify, I want to go on that track. We had a lot of students wanting to go on the, uh, on the animal track. So what I've seen is, is a community interested in taking on this issue, and there's a lot of scope to address this issue. Again, a kind of advantage is we're used to thinking about food as a religious issue. You know, there's not really many Jewish institutions that don't have a kosher policy. Even if the policy is, we don't worry about the kosher symbol, uh, they have to state it. Uh, it's a pretty kind of normal thing. So we have a lot of ability to take on this issue in our communities. You know, in the personal life, of course, everybody can do that. But we're in a pretty, pretty privileged place to start thinking about what it would mean to take on these issues uh, in the way we serve food in our communities. And the invitation uh, I'm ending with uh, is simply to consider how you might be a part of that. Uh, and supporting somebody uh, at uh, an institution you're a part of that maybe is very energetic and wants to do it. If you're feeling very energetic, you could uh, uh, be a leader. But I think it's, it's something that the present moment um, uh, really kind of calls us uh, to do. And um, I will uh, stop my formal presentation there uh, and would love to continue the discussion. So thank you. work you're doing with organizations to help them understand some more animal friendly policies and options, recipes, or you know, whatever you can say more about that kind of work you're doing with organizations. Sure, sure, yeah. So uh, so we have two full time people who are kind of attending to this from different perspectives. Uh, one of uh, one of whom is a fellow named uh, Yadija Greenberg, uh, who is a, a shochet, uh, very um, scrupulous about uh, you know, how he you know, thinks about uh, that enterprise. Uh, and his uh, work is to help identify and create new supply chains. You know, I focused on chickens because it's really bad in, in the chicken industry. If I wanted to pick uh, the meat industry that was uh, in the best shape today, I would have picked the beef industry, in particular the 100% grass-fed uh, beef industry. And I have to just signal you there, if you see grass-fed beef, that means nothing. All beef is grass-fed. If you see 100% grass-fed beef, that means it's raised on pasture entirely or almost entirely. Uh, and it's not in a kind of industrial system. And you can find that pretty easily. But if you want chicken for your Friday night dinner uh, and you look into this stuff and you decide, I don't want uh, one of these birds that is uh, kind of uh, a prisoner in its own body, it's actually very hard to find one that's kosher. Uh, you pretty much have to arrange with the farmer to raise uh, and find the shoket to slaughter or slaughterhouse to slaughter them. Um, and then, but if you're an institution, this is a perfectly uh, straightforward thing to do in a certain way. It's a certain amount of extra effort. Uh, but if you're a summer camp, if you're a big JCC or something, you have enough meals that that makes sense. So his job is essentially to make what would otherwise be far too much to ask of a Jewish institution possible, which is if they're really committed to getting meat that meets certain standards, he will help set up supply chains, work with farmers, work with slaughterhouses, and make that possible. So that's people have a lot of energy because it's really hard work. Uh, we also uh, just do consulting with folks on how to modify what they're serving in ways that are cheap and easy that can reduce suffering. So it's often you can switch your egg supplier or maybe you can just use fewer animal products in this way or that way. Um, there's almost always things that are low-hanging fruit that can be done. So there's a kind of consultation model. Uh, and then depending on different kinds of resources, we can do kind of more outreach 
But right now, there's probably maybe like 50 or 60 Jewish institutions who are in contact with, who are creating some kind of change in their food sourcing. Some institutions will do policies where they kind of get together as a community and say, what are our values? You know, what, how, how much is animal welfare worth to us? And what are we going to do? And they'll create a formal policy. Other institutions kind of are adverse to that, but they're ready to make changes. Oh, if you point me to an egg supplier that's uh, a little bit better and it's 5% uh, more, we can do that. And then the exciting part is then you can tell the story. Right, and tell the story of it. One of the most successful Jewish summer camps of the last uh, decade is a camp called uh, Eden Village. Anybody familiar with Eden Village? Yeah, so it's an it's a East Coast camp. They actually just, they're going to open up for the first time uh, in uh, uh, a West Coast one. So 2018, kids will start going there. But both the original one was founded. They won a big multi-million dollar grant and same thing to open the West Coast one. And their big innovation, what got donors interested in them was they said, look, the most valuable programming time at most camps is totally squandered. Three times a day, you get everybody in the camp together into a room, and they're eating together, and you basically just try to make that happen as quickly as possible, and then maybe you do some cool stuff afterwards while they're all together. But the food itself is not part of the lesson. The food itself is not part of the story. It's just, you know, probably famously bad, right? Most, most of the jokes about summer camp food are just about how bad it is. And so they said, we want to actually turn this into the most valuable programming time. We're going to have a small farm. There's going to be a small amount of produce that's produced. So the kids will pick some kale in the morning. It'll be served to them in the evening. Every meal, we're going to tell the story of where the food comes from. And of course, they don't want to tell the factory farm story. So they find ways to get around that, serve a lot less animal products. Uh, and those they do, they're really scrupulous about. And the camp has been uh, you know, a huge success. And like I said, now in 2018, we'll have one on the uh, West Coast. Uh, we had nothing to do with that. That's just uh, uh, a story. So that's some of the stuff we're doing. Philosophically or empirically, where do you find the distinction between humans and animals uh, to be significant, or do you find it to be insignificant? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of data on the capacity for speech, the capacity for reason. Sure. Sure. Uh, and are those differences as, as distinct as, as we suspect? Yeah. Yeah. So human uniqueness, um, in, uh, if I put my academic hat in the kind of, uh, so at the Society for Jewish Ethics, which I'm serving as president of, or in other kind of academic circles, broadly, in and outside of uh, Jewish studies, the question of human uniqueness is actually getting a lot of uh, attention these days. And the general trajectory is, Oh, we thought we were unique in that way. Oh, but now we realize well, we're not. That's kind of you know, what's been happening. So uh, this doesn't mean we're not unique. It's, it's just we said, oh, only human beings use tools. Remember hearing that? People grow up hearing that. Only, and then it turns out apes and certain fish and other animals use tools. Said, no, no, only humans use tools to make tools. That became the criteria. So other animals use only, And then it turns out crows will use tools to make tools. OK. You know, so it's not tool use. It's, you know, and they just keep kind of hopping around. So that's an interesting phenomenon to note. It doesn't mean to me that humans aren't unique. It seems rather obvious to me that humans are unique, just like cheetahs are unique and elephants are unique. I mean, we're, we're a pretty distinctive kind of species. Uh, but what it tells you is that we have a kind of obsession with thinking we're unique in ways we're not. Uh, and that, I think, is a really important thing um, to note. So I am a little bit allergic uh, these days to bold assertions of human uniqueness. Uh, because of this history, I'm suspicious what we're up to. Like, what are we really trying to say? 
If we're trying to say what a beautiful species is the human, uh, I could be okay with that. But what we're usually saying is um, we obviously are just qualitatively different from all these other animals, so some horrible exploitation can follow. And uh, I'm obviously uh, uh, suspicious of that kind of thing. So what I would say is, yeah, humans are unique. The question is whether we are uh, uniquely unique, which is really what we want to be able to say. We want to be able to say not only is our species different in important ways, it'd be easy for me to come up with a definition that will stand the test of time. I could say human beings are the only species that ever has made a cell phone. Pretty sure that's going to stick, right? You agree with me that's going to stick? But who cares? So what? We're the only species that makes a cell phone. It doesn't matter. We can identify our uniqueness in ways that isn't so important. But when we try to hit the things that are really important, there's probably going to be at least one or two other species, chimpanzees with whom we share, you know, 98% of our DNA are probably going to fall into that, you know. So, oh, another one was only, uh, only humans will uh, lie, only humans will deceive. That was another one. No, no, turns out, got a lot of deception uh, in the animal world. Only humans have self-recognition. Oh, nope, turns out elephants, a lot of social mammals it looks like, will recognize themselves in the mirrors and other kinds of tests. So I'm highly suspicious of the discourse of human uniqueness in the way it's been deployed. But I also think it's obvious we're a unique species. And we can attend to that in ways that aren't kind of uh, uh, triumphalistic. And that kind of uniqueness I have no problem with. But if we accept that kind of uniqueness, we have to accept that other animals also have that uniqueness. The elephants are unique. The dogs are unique. One of the things I've been invited to think about um, uh, recently, which hadn't occurred to me, is that animals may actually really be our superiors in particular ways, particular animals in particular ways that are really interesting. And the example that was given to me was dogs and their capacity for empathy and affection. Right? If you interacted with a dog, this may not be that hard to understand. It may be, I mean, dogs are so, it's like you could like hit a dog in the face and two minutes later it's ready to lick you and, uh, you know, give you love. They're incredibly tolerant, incredibly, and it's, I mean, not every dog, but it clearly is a species uh, common kind of behavior. You know, what is a dog's experience of empathy and love like? You know, maybe it's an expanded range. I don't, you know, I don't know. You know, what uh, other animals may have perceptive, we, we know in terms of like sight or hearing, they have perceptive capacities which will exceed ours. But there may be things that we care about morally um, that they can do in interesting ways we can't. And instead of that being, well, you know, that's a terrible thing, we're, we're not unique anymore, um, that could just be a wondrous thing. It would be kind of cool to think about the way in which we can get to know creation and experience these different uh, ways of being in the world by being with animals. Maybe that's a lot of why we like dogs so much, because we, we do. We like dogs. Most people who have kids get a dog. That's the most common time people get a dog. More Americans will get a dog than not if they have kids. Well, I got a question, but first let me just make a comment. Um, the humans and animals, we all said, share the same biology, so mechanically or biologically, we are similar in that respect. My question is a little bit off, maybe. Uh, some of the European countries have outlawed uh, the Shrika. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So this is uh, obviously bound up with uh, anti-Semitism. I mean, some of the people, some of the people in it are well-meaning, uh, but most of the people are not. Uh, so is that, is that enough? Good enough? Yeah. Yeah. Meaning, yeah. they cared enough about animals. There's a whole bunch of other approaches they <laughs> yeah. can take that just isolated the Jews. Yeah. 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 Uh, I suppose it's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the state of um, 
predatory farming in Israel, because it's not something that I um, really was aware of. I mean, the last time, I haven't been in Israel in 12 years, and I, I think the last time I was there, I really didn't see, I mean, the, and I didn't see evidence <coughs> of it. I was on, you know, I spent a lot of time on the kibbutz, and, you know, it was still, I mean, I guess that it, to some extent, is factory farming, I mean, or, or communal farming, but it's still, I mean, on a relatively small scale on a kibbutz compared to, I didn't, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see 20,000 birds or anything, you know. Yeah, the, ch the chicken industry would look like I described it in yeah, Israel. I didn't, I mean, yeah. I didn't, I didn't go to any, I didn't, the, the kibbutz I lived on didn't have yeah. chickens, so. Yeah, you probably wouldn't want to hang out in the chicken building even if no, it was right there. I yeah. did see the cows, but there weren't that many cows. I yeah. There were just enough to feed people on the, the on the kibbutz and, yeah. you know, and there were, you know, pomelos and palm trees and, uh, you know, date palms and things like that, but I, like, I don't know what the, like, how do they rationalize what you're describing? I don't understand. Oh, uh, people don't really rationalize it. We just don't know about it. And so this is, but this is the state, this is how yeah. the state of Israel is feeding the population now? And, yeah. and how recent has this, like, come to be? It's, 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 as the technology, it's this, it's the, Israel would have acquired the technology in the same kind of arc as it existed. So by the, by the 70s, this was dominant, and I suspect that's true in Israel as well. So yeah, I get, you know, I'm born in 1973. Pretty much by the time I entered the world, factory farming was well entrenched. You know, and now, like in the, in the poultry industry, the percentage is, if you do the math, it's 99.8% of the industry uh, is uh, using these genetically uh, strange birds that I described. 99.8%? Yeah. Of, of poultry produced in this, country. in this country. I don't have a statistic for Israel, but I am sure it's the same. Yeah, it'll be vir vir in other words, virtually 100% with chickens. With pigs, it's very high. Is that true in like in all of, of the Western Hemisphere? Like, in the Western right? Hemisphere, yeah, in Europe as well. In Europe as well. Now you have better and worse systems. Okay. Right? We can, uh, uh, like I mentioned, those different growth rates of the birds the 40-day, the 60-day, and the 80-day bird. So you've got folks who will preference, like in France, there's a pretty significant part of the market, which is 60-day birds, which still means they're going twice as fast as birds did after 10,000 years of genetically making them ideal for human consumption. I mean, that's the thing to realize. When we're taking these animals, and I'm giving you these statistics, it's after you know, the whole arc of modification. I mean, we've been really, um, we've been at it for a while, making these animals well-adapted. So yeah, Israel is, you know, countries that have less land are particularly attracted to industrial farming. And a lot of, um, a curious thing that is, that is potentially positive um, about where Israel is getting some of its meat is a lot of it is coming, a lot of the beef is coming from uh, Latin America, which is more likely to have the animals entirely on pasture for a number of reasons. So you have a lot of 100% grass-fed uh, beef uh, going to uh, Israel. Now, the problem is that kosher slaughter in Latin America is a mess. Temple Grandin sees it as the most abusive situation globally. She doesn't talk about that publicly because she's not an anti-Semite, and she actually thinks kosher can be really well done. Uh, but the way it's happening in uh, Latin America is not, um, is not not good. They're importing a lot of meat that comes yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is there concern too about what you touched on earlier, climate change, and the, any realization that 
the cost to loss of the Amazon rainforest and all the trees to support all these cows. Yeah, so climate change is potentially something which will wake people up to this. But if you go and see, you know, an inconvenient sequel, yeah. they talk a lot about energy, which is like maybe number three, potentially number two in certain countries, but not a word about the food sector. Al Gore, uh, I, I, I heard he went uh, vegan for health reasons. Uh, Clinton was very open about uh, doing this. So they're not unaware of uh, alternative modes of eating, but they're politicians who know just how much pushback you get when you go after the meat industry and how complacent most of us are to say, great job, Al. You know, we're really glad you're, you're doing that. But when you sit down with folks, I see, I see the questions. I'll just finish one little story, and then I'll, I'll take those comments. But when you actually sit down around a table and can have a good conversation, because you've got a lot of institutions sincerely trying to reduce their carbon footprint, right? And they're like trying to reduce their water usage and trying to you know, use less electricity. And it's really hard to make any dent. But if you just change, you just reduce your meat consumption by like 10%, boom, you're like you know, the star of the neighborhood for it. So as we've had conversations and you bring this out, this has been really motivational. So I was just blown away. I have a colleague uh, who's working at, uh, with uh, Christian-affiliated uh, universities in the UK and trying to get them to do kind of food policy work like I mentioned us doing in the, in the Jewish context. And he was expecting you know, maybe he'd get them to switch to some more humane animal suppliers, maybe reduce meat consumption like 10, 15, 20%. You have a fair number of institutions trying that. Um, and the president's office wanted to set up a committee to discuss this. And I'm like, oh, a committee, that's the end of that. Nothing good's going to happen. But the committee was for real. Committee comes out and they say, we want a 50, this is like, these are not animal people. This is just a, you know, kind of middle of the road college and, uh, Chester, uh, UK, they come out with a 50% meat reduction pegged to 2014 levels. They've already reduced it a little bit, but they want to have 50% meat reduction between 2014 and I think it's 20, uh, 2020. And uh, because they're looking at the numbers and they want to be able to say, we have reduced our carbon footprint more than any other university in the entire UK, and this is how they can do it. They can't compete with Oxford and Cambridge in terms of dollars and resources. So building the solar array, et cetera, they don't have the resources, but they can change their food and make just as big an impact. Sir, you had your hand. Wondering the difference between Farmer Brown in the 1800s, where he had to grow enough chickens to feed his family and have a few more to help or to sell down the road for somebody else. As, first of all, factory farming in that sense couldn't survive, it wouldn't have any use. Well, it, it hasn't survived in Western countries. It didn't have to go that way. But yeah, that's the traditional system, you know, where you have 20 to 30 birds, and you get their eggs, and you occasionally slaughter from the flock, occasionally sell some. But then the difference between 1800 and now is that we have a whole lot more people of two kinds, really. They all eat, but some of them make computers, so they can't farm, and some of them make or whatever they make, so they can't make farms. So you could argue that the solution to the problem, including global warming, mm -hmm. would be to say, okay, fewer people, then who do we cut? <laughs> well, Children, seriously, China tried it. Uh -huh. uh, the elderly, uh, the Social Security. So which came first, no pun, the chicken or the egg?
Yeah, which was groundbreaking. Well, these things came together, so it's really hard to disentangle technological, you know, progress from some of the problems here. But we have kind of hit the limit of that. That is, the story of technology was it got rid of farm jobs, right? But it created these new jobs. You know, the computer chip person, and that was the case. It's certainly been the case. You know, we still have. You know, despite you know unemployment problems, we don't have like you know massive unemployment, totally dysfunctional kind of economy. But it's not necessarily clear that that's the way it's going to go in India and China. So India is something I've, I you know really only have the most cursory information about China, but India I have some more knowledge in. And the estimates it's a pretty big range, but they think about 30 to 60 percent of the poultry industry in India is still traditional birds done in that small flock kind of way. And in the U.S., it was only a century ago, so I didn't go back to 1800. I'm just going back to, you know, 1915 kind of moments. That's when you had the millions and millions of farms in America with these small flocks, and you had incredibly sophisticated systems of aggregation. This was also in, almost entirely controlled by, uh, by women. There's an interesting gender dynamic. When it went industrial, men took over the industry. And it was to the point, like our USDA would use our uh, train systems. They'd take entire train cars, like two or three train cars, and they'd turn them into kind of teaching centers. And these groups of women would be you know, sent around the country, supported by our government, to teach people how to do small flocks. And then other businesses were set up which would collect the eggs and sell them in market and collect the birds and bring them to a slaughterhouse. So you had massive, massive numbers of small farms. India today has the biggest dairy industry um, in the world. They've just recently surpassed ours. We've been number one for a while. They were really proud a couple of years ago to become the number one dairy industry. And most of that dairy is produced on farms with one or two cows. They just have a massive aggregation system. They built it like from, you know, right, it was designed under the British. And, uh, you know, when India got its independence, they executed it. It's called Operation Flood, which is, you know, nothing we've heard of, but most Indians would have heard of Operation Flood. It's an alternative vision of how you can feed uh, massive populations. It didn't have to become massive, huge farms with very uh, you know, few people in them. Part of the reason India didn't go for big, massive dairy uh, farms is because it was worried about employment. Right? But they were nonetheless able to create a dairy industry capable of feeding a billion people. It's industrialized in important ways. I don't love the Indian dairy industry. It's got a lot of problems. The genetic modification they did. But in terms of farm scale, I think they got it right. So there's really just many more possibilities than we often think. There's kind of a story, at least that I was told and that I still kind of hear, that the whole world is just going to look like America. They're just behind. And um, it's just not the case. It was much more complicated than that. Um, and part of the you know, concern is if India, and you hear this a lot from global warming people, they're just not talking about food, uh, but if India and China go the same way we do, we're just finished. You know, it's not going to uh, be sustainable. The data is just horrifying to everyone who looks at it. Um, but they don't have to, you know. Uh, but if uh, we show no uh, interest in changing things, that's um, going to make that less likely. If there's reflection in places like the U.S. on what went wrong in our system and serious attempts to rebuild alternatives, um, that will have a profound impact on India uh, and China. So. There's uh, a, lot, a lot of possible futures, I think. But I, 
I agree with your basic point that how, what exactly drove what in terms of the change is deeply complicated, and I wouldn't want to say that's simple. So are we just at the start of this consciousness and this movement getting started to change things? Is it gaining traction? What are the statistics on yeah. that? It is, there's some good news there, yeah. It, it's ultimately a hopeful, it's a very dark time in terms of the you know, material situation, but it's a very hopeful time in terms of what's happening numerically. So in 2015, there's always, uh, it's the, I think Food Marketing Institute is I believe the, the uh, entity I'm thinking of. But there, pardon? The Food Marketing Institute sounds like a very scary organization. Oh yeah, it's, it's an industry organization that you know, generates statistics and so forth. Um, are you saying it just sounds like, or do you know something specific there? No, I'm just, like, it just yeah. very, like, scary. It's, a, it's, a, it's an industry body, and they don't actually go just, you know, data crunchers. Uh, but they, per, you know, they, they do a lot of the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, marketing is kind of scary, is what I could say. But they're pretty standard for marketers. But they do a poll on what consumers want. And this is speaking to your question. And uh, in 2015, and it's maintained itself, but they reported that uh, uh, animal welfare, aside from factors that directly impact the person, like health or antibiotics or that kind of thing, uh, animal welfare is now the number one thing consumers are looking for. Uh, I, about a decade ago, about the same time I started Farm Forward, um, started on a project with Whole Foods to create an animal welfare certification um, that essentially would uh, be the first tiered system. So we've had a number of animal welfare certifications around for a while, but it's like one standard fits all. And if you're trying to actually change the market, that doesn't work so well, because you want to be able to reward the farmer who's a little bit better, but even more reward the farmer who's better than that, and really reward the farmer who's at the top. So they came up with a, uh, a five-tiered uh, five system, uh, or we came up with a five-tiered system. It's a board that's half industry people and half animal groups. It's built into its bylaws. It was originally funded uh, by the CEO of Whole Foods and some Whole Foods money, and since has gone you know, independent and, and gets its funding from uh, charitable sources. But we started with zero animals in that system. Uh, there's now 340 million animals in that system. Uh, and we think we'll have a billion animals in the system within the next couple years. Um, and that's entirely driven by consumer willingness to pay more um, for a certification. Now the challenge um, is that our consumers aren't very sophisticated in terms of what we look for. Um, so it's easy to fool people. So the largest animal welfare certification in this country is called uh, American, Humane Cert uh, American Humane Certified, AHC. Billions and billions of animals are in it, and it's virtually meaningless. It's just an industry uh, kind of prop. Um, and you know, they have billions of animals, but we've got hundreds of millions in a system that really um, I feel very good about. Uh, so the data is people are ready to pay more. Uh, young people especially are ready to eat less meat. Um, Jonathan Four, um, who, who I work with a lot and who's a good... Uh, has good like intuition about these things. Another way to kind of uh, get at stuff. He's like, you know, it's like there's no way I can imagine a future in which 50% of people go vegetarian, but I can imagine a future in which 50% of the meals we eat are vegetarian. And I think he's on to something there. We have very large percentages of people will say, I want to eat, uh, I want to eat less meat. Now, whether they do that is another question. It turns out a lot of people say that, but don't do it. Um, 
But the minds are changing. Um, and I can certainly tell you, as someone who's, you know, I teach uh, uh, college students every you know, semester, I teach you know, modern Jewish thought. And I do teach stuff on animals and religion and food and religion. But I also just do you know, courses that are uh, overviews of Judaism. Um, and these are issues that resonate with young people really uh, profoundly. It's an uh, easy uh, engagement compared to trying to engage folks in my you know, immediate uh, peer group. And that bears out uh, in statistics in terms of what people want in the dining halls. Like uh, Aramark, people know Aramark is the largest food or the second largest food service provider uh, in the country, one of the real big ones. So thousands of colleges um, use them. And, and there, this is maybe, you know, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, not, not that recent, but in one of their polls where they asked people, they don't ask the same questions every year, but they asked how many college students wanted to see more vegan meals. And 20% of college students says they wanted to see more vegan meals, which, you know, vegans are, you know, less than 1% of the uh, general population. So that's pretty striking. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. There's really good reasons to be hopeful, happily. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.